Hello and welcome to Power Pros Podcast, episode 197. I'm your host, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and with me once again is my co-host and nemesis, Pete Mashad. Show me your moves. Oh, will I ever, Pete. I will definitely be showing you some moves during this podcast. In fact, we've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about from the world of Nintendo. We've got some game impressions. We have some news. We've got some moves. And then we have this week's big topic, which is going to be our favorite video game soundtracks. Ooh, we've been waiting for this one. Yeah, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. However, before we get to that, we have some other exciting stuff to talk about, including a game that does indeed have plenty of moves. I am talking about Streets of Rage 4 for the Nintendo Switch from the folks at Lizard Cube, Guard Crush Games, and Dot Emu. And Pete, let me tell you, I am absolutely loving this game. It is a fantastic revival, more than 25 years later, of one of my favorite series from the 16-bit era, and is an excellent side-scrolling beat-em-up in its own right. To me, it is a perfect melding of new and old. It feels just like my favorite beat-em-ups from back in the day, with a great sense of impact and give-and-take when you're fighting enemies. It's got incredibly responsive controls, a great selection of moves, lots of characters, a variety of enemies, environments. Everything is slick and super smooth. Meanwhile, the gorgeously detailed hand-drawn visuals Online gameplay and plentiful unlockables bring this game decidedly into the modern era. It feels like a classic 2D beat-em-up, totally reborn for 2020. Wow, that was a mouthful, but it sounds like you really like it. So it's living up to expectations? Yes, it very much is. Like I said, I love the Streets of Rage series, so yeah, I was kind of worried what this would be like when I finally got my hands on it. But man, it has been everything I have wanted out of a game of this type. And it all starts with the four playable characters. It brings back a few of the classics from the old days, including Axel Stone and Blaze Fielding, who were two of the cops-turned-vigilante heroes from the original game, but now they are older and wiser. You'd really like Axel. Axel now has a hermit beard, even though he was clean-shaven before. (laughs) And... He's supposed to be, like, really thickly muscled now, but it kind of looks like he has, like, a massive beer gut. I mean, I can get down with that. It's a milk gut. (laughs) Exactly. In addition, there is the awkwardly named Cherry Hunter, who is the (laughs) daughter, not sister like I previously thought, of Adam Hunter, who was the third playable character in the original game. And then there is Lloyd Araya, who is this big, burly Samoan dude with robot arms. He's basically Robo-Rock. Uh, so is he a distant cousin of Jax from Mortal Kombat? Perhaps. He very well might be. And all these characters are just super fun to play. Blaze and Cherry are built more for speed. Axel is pretty well balanced and Lloyd is slow, but, you know, super strong and just built for grapples. And as I predicted, he did end up being my favorite. He can even grab two enemies at once and slam their heads together. And he's got this intense, crazed look on his face. And I just love everything about it. I will take damage just for the chance to use that move and knock people's heads together. It is amazing. Built for grappling? It sounds like one of my aunts. (laughs) I don't know what you mean by that, but uh, I will take your word for it. (laughs) Then on top of that, there are lots of unlockable playable characters as well, including the aforementioned Adam Hunter, who hasn't been a playable character since the series' very first entry. And then all these classic characters are here in all their 16-bit pixelated glory with their own play mechanics. And somehow there are just all these characters here, and they're all tons of fun, 
even if they are a little bit limited compared to the new characters, but still, it is an absolute blast to play. They all have a wide variety of strikes and throws and jump attacks and special attacks. Yep, those are all the moves for you, Pete. And uh, you can even grab weapons like pipes and knives and bats and bottles and pool cues and swords, police batons, you name it. And the way that special moves work is really cool as well. You lose a little bit of health when you use them, but it's not a permanent loss. Hmm. So if you beat up a few enemies without taking a hit, you'll then regain that health. So it gives you this really good reason to actually use these special moves and a great sense of risk and reward. Yeah, I feel like that was sort of a staple of the uh, mid-90s beat-em-up where you would use like a special attack and it would deplete some of your health right right uh, i like this uh, solution to it where you are able to regain it so long as you uh, don't take damage yeah it's definitely cool and as always you know it's variety and pacing in a game like this that keeps it fun and entertaining and interesting and the game really nails that aspect as well you know it starts out in the city streets it moves into a police station and then onto a boat which of course is a streets of rage staple then like a beach the sewers chinatown on top of a speeding train you go into an art museum you're backstage at a concert and even more and yes there are even not one, but two elevator levels, which, as any fan of the genre knows, is an essential part of a great beat-em-up. <laughs> yeah, two. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, for sure. The action feels very familiar, yet also very fresh. There's lots of room for surprises and moments that just made me grin ear to ear. You know, naturally, there are new enemies to locations, but there are also a lot of nice nods to the past, like familiar returning bosses and characters and scenes like, you know, even Rue, the boxing kangaroo from <laughs> Streets of Rage 3 makes a cameo for some reason, you know. Obviously, the developers have had a lot of respect for the original. It is a huge love letter to the franchise. The story was never like a strong point of the series, but you know, what's here is solid. It completely ties into the original games, with this game actually being set 10 years after the last entry, and the main villains are even like the adult kids of the main bad guy from Streets of Rage 1, 2, and 3. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, I love how they've like tied everything in together. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that was always great in those old ones was the music. That was always a fantastic oh, right. highlight of the series. And, you know, this game certainly sounds good as well. You know, some tracks are better than others. I wouldn't say it's quite as consistently great as Streets of Rage 1 or 2, but it's definitely better than Streets of Rage 3. And Yuzo Koshiro himself, the composer of those classic games, he even delivers a few tracks here that really set the mood for the game. And I think they are the best tunes in this offering. Boy, between Rue and the soundtrack, Streets of Rage 3, you know, really seems to be the uh, bottom of the barrel. Well, I wouldn't put it that way, but it is the series' weak link, that's for sure. Now, you know, it's not to say that everything in this game is perfect either. The one area where I feel like it could have used maybe a little bit of improvement is with some of the bosses. They're fun, that's absolutely for sure, but some of them are really cheap and they just have these big windows of invincibility or they gain what you would call super armor where you can hit them as much as you want but they will just like absorb the blows and then like just plow through you no matter how much you beat on them oh yeah plus they all tend to power up like halfway through the fight which seems kind of unnecessary you know strangely the first boss in the game might actually be the cheapest one <laughs> it just sets the tone then after that all the other ones seem less cheap 
<laughs> yeah, maybe so. But, you know, that aside, this game is an absolute blast. It is totally chock full of great content. It has five difficulty settings in story mode. It has an arcade mode where you have to play through the whole game with no continues. There's a boss rush mode. There's a multiplayer versus mode. And it's got some really fun extras as well. In addition to the retro characters I mentioned, you can activate a retro soundtrack option, which lets you play to the tunes from Streets of Rage 1 and 2. And there's even an option to change the health pickups. So instead of like picking up a roast chicken, you get like barbecue on a bone or maybe even a salad instead. <laughs> awesome. Any milk? No, no milk, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, as soon as I beat this game, I immediately started playing through it again with a different character. And then I played through arcade mode. And then I started playing in co-op mode, which in itself is just a ton of fun. You know, unfortunately, I haven't been able to play with more than two players yet because it supports up to four locally. And I have not been able to try online yet either. But just everything has been a joy to play so far. You know, I would easily call this my favorite beat-em-up game since the 1990s. Wow, that's high praise from you, huh? <laughs> yeah, but it is well-deserved. It is just a really, really well-made game. You know, naturally, I got this game as soon as I could download it, but I also ordered the Limited Run Games Collector's Edition, which includes the game, a Genesis-style case, an extra steelbook case, a soundtrack CD, an art book, a poster, a metal commemorative Genesis cartridge, a roast chicken stress ball, and a seven-inch tall mini-statue of the main characters. Wow. On top of that, it turns out that there was also a European collector's edition from Signature Edition Games, and I might have got that as well. Oh, Hoff. Oh, Hoff. It includes an art book, a soundtrack, a key ring, enamel pins of the five main characters, and a replica of Axel's bandana. I actually got that one for a different system, so I have the Switch one coming and then a PS4 version as well. So yes, to say that I am loving this game is an absolute understatement. Well, when you can't make rent this month, let me know. I'll bail you out. <laughs> that is much appreciated. But yeah, I just love everything this game does. I love the fact that Sega is licensing out its IPs to a new generation of creators that grew up with these series and loves them as much as I do. And I certainly hope to see more things like this continue in the future. Yeah, that's fantastic news. I mean, anytime people kind of delve back into, uh, you know, old IP, you really want them to be careful with the source material. Yeah, there's definitely a risk. Yeah, it sounds like they have. It sounds like they've been very respectful. It sounds like <laughs> for sure. in a lot of ways, it's definitely better than Streets of Rage 3. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think for me, the art style has kind of put me off a tiny bit, but it sounds like that's really not an issue. And, you know, I think I will be picking this one up, especially for $25. Seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, I could not recommend it highly enough. If you have any of beat 'em ups whatsoever, check it out right away. It's fantastic. Maybe we'll uh, have to play online. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to give it a go. In addition to Streets of Rage 4, I've been playing another reborn Sega Classic on Switch recently, that being Sega Ages G-Lock Air Battle. G-Lock standing for Loss of Consciousness by G-Force. Wow. Did you ever play this game in the arcade back in the day by any chance, Pete? If I did, I didn't know it by name. <laughs> okay, well, this title is an arcade-style, you know, sort of flight sim in the vein of Afterburner. You know, by flight sim, I mean you basically are shooting down everything that moves with your machine gun and your lock-on missile capabilities. The cool thing about this arcade game was the big, giant, honking cockpit cabinet that shook and moved when you played. <laughs> and while that obviously can't be recreated here on Switch... 
it does a remarkably good job. You actually get to select a virtual motion cabinet that reacts and shakes just like the real thing, even if you can't quite feel it in the same way. And the uh, Joy-Cons do a good job of recreating that rumble? The rumble is solid, but really it's all about the presentation that gives you this feeling of actually being there in this big arcade cabinet with like the ambience of an arcade all around you. And that, I would say, you know, is done pretty darn well. Wow, that sounds impressive. Yeah, it really is. And when it comes to the gameplay, you know, it delivers plenty of, you know, 90s style faux 3D Top Gun style goodness as you just shoot your way through level after level of enemy planes and occasional ground targets. There are three different courses of varying difficulty and number of levels that you can choose from, but the missions within each one are unique. So the nine levels in the beginner course are totally different from the 16 levels in the expert course. Graphically, I'd say the game looks about as good as you could expect for a 3D flying shooter from 1990. And while the shoot-em-up gameplay is definitely fun, the game structure is kind of weird in that it is, like, entirely (laughs) time-based. Your goal in every stage is to destroy a certain number of targets within the time limit, and if you do so, you get extra time and you move on to the next level, kind of like going through checkpoints in an arcade racing game. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even if you get shot down and explode... You know, you just keep going. I mean, you know, you waste a little bit of time, but suddenly you're back in your plane, and no matter how many times you have to eject, you will not get a game over until that time runs out, you know? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting mechanic for a game like that. Yeah, it's a little weird. It kind of makes the action a little less satisfying than it could be, and the lack of bosses is also, you know, maybe a little bit lackluster. But, of course, you know, that's how the original arcade game was, so it makes sense that that's how it is here. Since this is a Sega Ages release, there are naturally extra goodies, including various graphical filter options, a quick lock-on mode, which makes things a whole lot easier, plus this new extra-challenging Ages mode that lets you play through all 16 stages with only one credit, but with extra firepower at your disposal. Yeah, just looking at the images of it, it totally reminds me of Afterburner, or like you said, Top Gun. Definitely get some vibes of that. It does look, you know, graphically pretty appealing, and so you're saying it's a pretty good game? Yeah, I mean, it's very solid. It was a game I really, really liked in the arcade back in the day, but there was really never an opportunity for a great home port until now. I mean, there was a Genesis version, but it was you know not very good and did not deliver that arcade experience that you would want at home. So it's really cool to finally have an arcade perfect adaptation of this game here on Switch, finally. I don't know if it's a game I'm going to go back to a lot. I don't see myself, you know, returning to the skies in this title very often. It probably doesn't hold up as well as some of the other Sega Ages releases, but just the fact that it brings this game home and does it essentially arcade perfectly, I would certainly call this a big win. Yeah, it definitely seems like one you'd want in your virtual library if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, I imagine so. Is it eShop only or no? Yep, eShop only. You can grab it for a mere eight bucks. All right. And that is all we have for the game impressions this week, so let us move on to a little bit of news. And the big news of this week is that Nintendo announced a new title coming to Switch. It is Paper Mario, the Origami King, which is going to arrive in only about two months on July 17th. Yeah, this was definitely completely out of left field. I mean... Well, kind of. I mean, we heard the rumors. We actually talked about it on the show a couple episodes ago. 
But uh, yeah, we really knew nothing about it. And they're just like, oh boy, here it is. It's coming out in only two months, which is kind of crazy for Nintendo. <laughs> right. I guess that's what I meant. Is that, yeah, I mean, we definitely knew that a uh, Paper Mario was rumored. However, yeah, the fact that they're just like dropping a trailer and now you can pre-order it and it'll be out in two months is pretty unique for Nintendo of like a title of this degree. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. But, you know, regardless of that, it is a brand new Paper Mario adventure. And as the title implies, it is heavily origami themed. This time, the evil origami king, King Ollie, is like literally folding up the paper characters and things. And uh, he is trying to use this ability to take over the Mushroom Kingdom and basically the entire world. He has taken over Princess Peach already. He's taken over some of Bowser's minions. And, of course, is up to Mario to save the day. Yeah, I really love the origami style. You know, it's funny because it works really well with the whole paper theme. Mm -hmm. And it also kind of highlights the Switch capabilities and the fact that, you know, the graphics are really good. And now you can actually see, like, every little fold in the paper and, you know, Princess Peach looks cool. And then also, obviously, that little nod to the castle from Super Mario 64 was pretty cool. Yeah, I agree with you. The game has a great visual style. I mean, the last entry on Wii U looked great as well. I don't want to take anything away from that. But yeah, this one certainly does look very, very good. So yeah, as Mario is going through this game, he's going to have some new abilities at his disposal. He apparently has these uh, newfound extendable paper arms, his 1,000-fold arms, they are called. And he'll be able to use these to grab and pull and unfold the game world and apparently beyond that he'll be able to team up with a variety of other characters who are trying to resist king ollie that includes bowser jr and then even bowser himself who seems to have been folded up into this funny little square <laughs> yeah i mean you even see the uh, clown boat making an appearance yeah he looks like mario might be making his escape on that thing and, uh, you know, it's possible that even some other familiar characters have been uh, turned into origami by uh, King Ollie. You know, we get to see a cameo by Samus Aran and Donkey Kong. You know, their huge bulbous heads are making cameo appearances at any rate. Pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, the Samus joke obviously is pretty outlandish for, you know, it appearing in a Mario game. Yeah, it's not too often we get a crossover like that, but it is indeed pretty cool. Another thing that's, you know, really kind of unusual about this game is the whole tone. Like, the way it was presented in the trailer was the game seems like surprisingly ominous. Like, <laughs> all of the characters who've been turned into origami are basically possessed. And, you know, then you see stuff like, you know, this giant Goomba who looks like some sort of crazed zombie, this huge mummy made of rubber bands... There's like some big honking, I think it's a bad guy monster bursting out of the ground at one point. It's uh, surprisingly creepy. Yeah, there really are some dark themes. I mean, even from like the dialogue of Princess Peach, it's like, whoa, that's creepy. Yeah, yeah. The whole part about will you crease yourself and be reborn sounds pretty diabolical. It's really not the kind of thing you'd expect out of a Paper Mario game or really out of Nintendo at all. But uh, yeah, it certainly comes as a surprise. I mean, maybe the whole game isn't like that, but that's certainly the way it came across in this trailer. Yeah, but you know, dark themes are kind of fun, and uh, <laughs> we really haven't gone there before. So uh, yeah, I'm kind of into the vibe. Oh yeah, I'm not complaining. Don't get me wrong. In addition to that, 
The game seems to be offering a wide variety of environments. We've seen river rapids, ancient ruins, some fiery underworld, neon-drenched towns, as well as vehicles that are used to explore these environments. There's a boat that can be seen exploring the ocean overworld, and then even a little car patrolling the desert. The game promises to have a lot of puzzles, and then it also has this new circular ring-based battle system that uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, you know. It's divided into these 12 sections with a total of 48 spots. It kind of looks like a dartboard lying on the ground, you know. It's supposed to have, like, its own puzzle elements to it, where you will attempt to line up enemies and then, like, combo them into oblivion to maximize your damage. Yeah, you definitely get the feeling from the trailer that they want to uh, maybe reveal the gameplay at a later point in time. But yeah, I mean, definitely every Paper Mario game, the gameplay is some of the highlight of what makes the game special. So uh, curious about this one. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't look like it's going to be the return to you know semi-traditional RPG gameplay that I know a lot of people have been wanting ever since Thousand Year Door came out. But it does look like it's going to take things in an interesting new direction. I think for me, ultimately, it's going to come down to that battle system because, you know, focusing so much on item management during battles in the last two games was kind of a turnoff for me. So I'm very curious to see what this one's actually like when it comes to, you know, playing it and feeling it in hand. But, uh, you know, we're not really going to have that much longer before we find out, you know? Yeah, not long at all. Yep, only two months until we get to see how this one all unfolds. Oh, I was hoping you would do that. (laughs) You're welcome. And speaking of July releases on Switch, Deadly Premonition 2, A Blessing in Disguise, now has an official release date. It is coming out only a week before Paper Mario the Origami King. It is hitting on July 10th, both at retail and digitally. This, of course, is an M-rated murder mystery adventure set in both the past and the present. You know, I don't really know a whole lot about the Deadly Premonition games myself. I know they're known for being strange and quirky and have developed quite a cult-like following, and I'm glad to know it'll be arriving on the Switch in the not-too-distant future. Pete, have you ever played the original Deadly Premonition, or do you have any plans to pick up the sequel? Yeah, to be honest, this franchise, I know we've talked about it a little bit in the past. It's doesn't really stand out to me as something that I necessarily want to get into, but, you know, I feel like if the buzz is good for it, uh, I may give it a shot. All right. Well, if you do, I'll be curious to hear what you think. Uh, You're not going to pick this one up? I can't say I'm planning on it, but I guess we'll see. On the other hand, there is a game that I am most definitely going to pick up when it comes out in the near future, and that is Shantae and the Seven Sirens. No, surprise, surprise. (laughs) Yeah, obviously, that's from Way Forward, where I work, so naturally I'll be playing this one. But one thing that's got me really excited is that there are physical pre-orders for this one, and they are starting basically right now. It'll be available as of May 15th from Limited Run Games. There is a standard edition, as well as a collector's edition, which includes the soundtrack, a poster, a steelbook case, a set of 50 monster cards which replicate the in-game collectible, and also a non-functional commemorative Game Boy Color cartridge. And I'm just thrilled by the fact that both the regular and the collector's editions are open pre-orders until June 14th. You know, I wasn't privy to who made that decision, but, uh, you know, bless them. I say, I am just super happy that I'll be able to get this game without, you know, just waiting for it to go on sale and like trying to buy it before everybody else does. Because yes, even though I'm with WayForward, I have to buy the physical special editions just like everybody else does. 
Now, listeners, if you were wondering if he's just going to buy it because he works there, I can assure you he was going to buy this regardless. Oh, no, I've been a big Shantae fan for a long time. And I'm also a big limited run games fan. But I tell you, though, you know, I almost had a stroke getting that collector's edition for Streets of Rage 4 I was talking about earlier. The only collector's edition I've actually ever missed, ironically, was for a previous Shantae game, Shantae and the Pirate's Curse, because I was you know, out of the country when that one went up for sale. So I was kind of worried when I found out that, uh, oh, it's going to be a limited edition for limited run, and it's not going to be readily available with Exceed like it was last time. But it turns out hey, it is going to be out there for everyone. So it's not going to sell out in 60 seconds or anything like that. By the time you hear this podcast, it will still be available. And uh, yeah, it'll be available for anybody who wants it, which I think is awesome. Also, there's even a Shantae plush and a set of cards featuring concept art from Studio Trigger. So there is all kinds of Shantae goodness available on limitedrungames.com right now. Assuming you're listening to this before June 14th. You heard that right, folks. So there's no need to be shaking in your risky boots. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well put, Pete. Yar. There are a few other exciting things coming out this month. For one thing, Nintendo also announced just recently that there are four new classic games coming to Nintendo Switch Online on May 20th. Those four are Rygar on the NES, and then Wild Guns Operation Logic Bomb, and Paneled Upon, better known as Tetris Attack, all for the Super NES. Pete, you looking forward to any of these? Yeah, I mean, I think of this collection, Rygar has probably my most attention, mainly because I don't think I ever beat Rygar, and I might actually uh, get around to it with... Oh, heck, I never did. With the ability to kind of save and go back, you know, have the save states as well as the uh, rewind feature. That might finally allow me to beat Rygar. (laughs) Yeah, you're not joking. But uh, yeah, in addition to that, just seeing Paled Upon come out on the service is uh, really, really cool. I know that is a favorite of a lot of people. Of course, this game was later reborn as a Pokemon Puzzle League, right? Yeah, and I think there's also a version called Tetris Attack. Right, which I don't think we're ever going to see since Nintendo is not paying the uh, Tetris licensing fee for that. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, it is certainly great to see it arriving on Nintendo Switch Online, that's for sure. Yeah, I'll give it a shot. And then... After that, coming on May 26th, the Mortal Kombat 11 Aftermath expansion is arriving. Now, I haven't actually had a chance to play Mortal Kombat 11 yet on the Switch, but this expansion adds a brand new story mode where apparently Liu Kang is now a fire god and protector of Earthrealm, and he has to enlist the help of some familiar friends and foes to secure Earth's future. And then there are three brand new playable characters that will be added. Shiva, who is the four-armed female Shokan, who I believe originated in Mortal Kombat 3. Fujin, the Wind God, who I believe came from Mortal Kombat 4. And then, of course, everybody's favorite Mortal Kombat character, Robocop. (laughs) Wait, is Robocop really in it? Yes, he is absolutely in here. And he is joining characters like the Terminator and Spawn and the Joker as the most completely nonsensical Mortal Kombat characters in existence. But yes, this is completely real. Well, that makes perfect sense, really. When it comes to uh, Mortal Kombat, yes, just about anything goes. In addition, there will be new stages, new stage fatalities, and then friendships, which I guess were not in Mortal Kombat 11 previously. Who knew? Apparently... You can get this add-on for $40 
Or if you don't have Mortal Kombat 11 yet, you can get the whole bundle for only $60. It kind of seems like a huge ripoff to me for people who already bought the base game for like, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. <laughs> but uh, hey, whatever. If you have not played or purchased Mortal Kombat 11 yet and you want to get this whole complete package, it sounds like a great deal to me. Like I said, I haven't played it yet, so maybe this will be my opportunity. Yeah, this actually seems like it could be perfect timing for them to announce the latest Smash Brothers DLC character, you know, Scorpion. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to bet my beard on that one, but uh, yeah, you never know. <laughs> or maybe it'll be Robocop. <laughs> or Ed 209. Oh, he's in there too, by the way. I think he's in one of his fatalities. <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense. I'm not joking. He is totally in there. I totally believe you. Moving along to the completely opposite end of the gaming spectrum, the folks over at Natsume have announced there is a brand new Harvest Moon title on the way. It is called Harvest Moon One World and is coming out this fall. This is an all-new entry in the Harvest Moon Farming Sim series. They are promising a brand new game engine and brand new style of graphics. I would personally say that is good because the last few entries have felt a little limited and uh, the visual style was maybe a little bit too much on the kitty side for me. That aside, they are promising unique villagers, some familiar faces as well, and adventurous challenges. And they say it is set in, quote, a world without tomatoes, strawberries, or even cabbage. And you go on an adventure spanning the entire world to bring crops and farming back to life. What does that even mean? How do you span the entire world? I don't know. They haven't shown any screenshots for this yet. But obviously, the Harvest Moon series is the one that sort of started all when it comes to farming. So I'm always glad to see a new entry in this franchise. <laughs> I kind of feel bad for anyone who has to come up with a storyline for Harvest Moon. <laughs> yeah, coming up with a plot for a farming game can't be easy. Unfortunately, the one thing that I don't know yet is if this one will have capybars in it, because really, that's the make-or-break sell point for me. But can you get married? Don't think they've said anything about that either way, but I'm pretty sure you cannot get married to a capybara. <laughs> that would make sense. And then one more item of interest this week. Pete, this is one you brought to my attention. The game called Abs vs. the Blood Queen. What is this all about? Yeah, it seems like the guys that created Killer Queen Black on the Switch, and of course Killer Queen in the arcades, have decided to make this single-player adventure using the Killer Queen engine. Yep, it is basically a side-scrolling spin-off of Killer Queen, and they are doing this via Kickstarter. Now, the good news is that you know this game is coming and has already met its minimum Kickstarter goal. The bad news is it still needs about $20,000 before it is guaranteed to come to Switch. Yeah, and that's where you come in. Me? Not not our listeners, you, huh? Well, unfortunately, I spent all my money on Streets of Rage 4 Collector's Editions, but I hope it reaches its goal nonetheless. You could also sell your Amiibo collection, of course. Oh, no, I'm not doing that. No chance, no chance. Anyway, if you are interested in making this game come to Switch, better get on the Kickstarter right away because the campaign ends on May 22nd. And that takes care of the news for this episode. Let us move along and answer a little bit of listener mail. And this week we have a letter from listener Sean who writes, Thanks for the great podcast. Longtime listener, first time emailer. I've only ever played a portion of that first Shantae on the 3DS Virtual Console. I'd like to get into the series with the new release coming. So my question to you, Hoff, is what order would you recommend I tackle the games in? I'm a huge fan of action platformers, if that helps, with Mega Man being my favorite series of all time. 
Speaking of which, I've been attempting to tackle a Mega Man Marathon with the Anniversary Collections. I hit a wall playing 8 for the first time until I got my SNES Switch controllers and started using that piece of gaming perfection. Excited to get to 9, which is on par with 2 as my absolute favorite in the series. Hope the whole team at WayForward has a successful Switch release day. Now, Chris, is this you? <laughs> no, no, it's not. I'm sorry to tell you, even though I uh, certainly do enjoy my Shantae's and my Mega Man's quite a bit. All right. And uh, yeah, this is kind of a tough question. Which Shantae game do you start with or what order do you play them in? Personally, I think I would go with Shantae Half Genie Hero as the first one. It's the most modern it was the first built specifically for home consoles. The visuals are HD. It's also very accessible and fast-paced, and it is more of an action platformer. Plus, it was intentionally built as a jumping-on point with minimal continuity to worry about. Now, most of the games in the series are more Metroid-style types of games, and that's one of the things that people seem to really like about it. In fact, a lot of people say that Shantae and the Pirate's Curse is their favorite, and that is certainly a great game, but the reason why I would find that hard to recommend to newcomers, regardless of their preference for Metroid style or platformer style, is that story-wise, it ties directly into the ending of Shantae Risky's Revenge, so if story and spoilers matter to you, I would say, you know, play Risky's Revenge before Pirate's Curse for sure, because it's basically two halves of one big story. So yeah, I would start with Half Genie Hero, then move on to Risky's Revenge, and then top it off with like the dessert cherry on top with Shantae and the Pirate's Curse. And as far as the you know, first Shantae, like you said, you already played that one a little bit, you can fit that one in at any time, pretty much. But uh, yeah, there are, depending on your tastes, good reason to go with any of these. All right, good to know. And I need to uh, do a uh, Mega Man marathon myself one of these days. Yeah, you should, totally. In fact, I should for that matter. Good suggestion. Thanks, Sean. That does it for our letters for this week, so I think it's time for us to take an intermission, and then when we come back, uh, we will discuss this week's big topic. Excuse me? Uh, yes. Is there a problem, Pete? Yeah, you're about to go to break. Uh, yeah? What's wrong with that? There's one thing I need to do before you can go to break. Oh. Okay. I think I figured it out by now. Just go ahead. Just go ahead and say it. What's the time for, Pete? It's time to... Hassle. Aha. Yep, yep, I definitely saw that coming this time. Okay, Pete, what do you have for me this episode? <laughs> Dear Video Game Professor Hop. Yes? If you could choose any game in the history of video games to have a completely different soundtrack than it currently has, what would it be? Huh. It's an unusual question I was not prepared for. This would be probably a game where I don't really like the current soundtrack. I'd want to see it changed. Right. Love the game, hate the soundtrack. Interesting proposal you make. I think I would go with ActRaiser 2. Mm. And I wouldn't say I actually love the gameplay in that or anything, but there were a lot of aspects to that game where I felt let down. And one of those was absolutely the soundtrack. The soundtrack to the first Act Razor was absolutely phenomenal. The one for the sequel, not so much. So I would love to have the original composer for Act Razor 1 come back and do 
justice to the soundtrack by uh, composing their own tracks for ActRaiser 2. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that is the one I would go with. The first one was just so great. The second one, paled by comparison. Yeah, that's the one I would redo for sure. Uh, good choice. ActRaiser 1 is a fantastic soundtrack. Yes, yes it is. He passed. This time, huh? <laughs> All right, glad to hear it. In that case, we will take our intermission, and then we will come back and talk even more about video game music when we discuss our big topic, our favorite video game soundtracks. All right, we are back, and we are ready to discuss this week's big topic, which is our favorite video game soundtracks. Music has, of course, been an integral part of video gaming since the days of the NES, and video game music can often turn a good game into a great game. Many of my favorite games are my favorite games because the music elevates them to that level, and the compositions used in game music personally, I would say, are as good as anything you'll hear in movies or on the radio. A lot of times, a game's music really elevates a particular feeling or mood that the gameplay is trying to convey. Sometimes the music is just fantastic on its own, and I'll want to buy the soundtrack and listen to it over and over and over again. I have long wanted to do an episode talking about our favorite game music, and that time, Pete, has finally arrived. You know, we're not going to do anything too special here. We're just going to talk about our top 10 individual video game soundtracks on Nintendo systems presented in no particular order. You know, narrowing it down to just my 10 favorites was hard enough. Putting them in order, I would say, is nearly impossible. Yeah, especially a lot of the older soundtracks in games, you don't even necessarily realize how magnificently they're crafted until you hear it like, you know, covered by a band or, you know, rearranged in like a modern game. And it's like, wow, this soundtrack really has some impact. It's pretty insane how good a lot of these old school video game soundtracks are. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, for me, my personal favorite compositions do tend to be these classics from the 8-bit or 16-bit days. And I actually think that part of that is because those games, you know, the sound designers they didn't really have anything else to fall back on. Their tools were pretty limited, and so if they didn't make these amazing compositions, you know, there was really nothing else they can do. They just had to make something catchy and enthralling because advanced technology couldn't save them. I mean, that's not to say there aren't amazing compositions now, but I think that back then, the desire to really shine in spite of the technological limitations, it just really helped these composers create some really fantastic, memorable tunes. I couldn't have said it better myself. So yeah, basically, these are just some of our favorite tunes. We are going to be sharing them with everybody listening. 
And uh, before we do that, I will mention one caveat. We intentionally left the Super Smash Brothers games off this list because they basically have all of the good game music ever made combined into one, and we figured that including that would kind of be cheating, despite the fact that they do have you know, some of their own unique takes on a lot of great tunes. Uh, but nonetheless, that's why that one isn't on here. However, with that in mind, I say it's time for us to just get to it. All right, you want to lead off here, Hoff? Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to start with a game that we actually were already talking about a little bit on this episode, and that is Act Racer for the Super NES. Ah. This is the game that made me sit up and think, wow, it's possible for a video game to do that? It literally sounded like a symphonic orchestra was coming out of the Super NES. It had some great action tunes, with the first level being especially captivating, but also had some really powerful emotional tunes and this great ending song that sounded like it came out of a blockbuster movie. Yuzo Kashiro was absolutely at the top of his game with this one. Yeah, the whole Act Razor soundtrack is a classic. This selection is a great pick. It's definitely a rockin', you know, intro to the game. And I love that, like, galloping bass line. So my turn, I guess. I'm going to go with something from the Contra series. In fact, you know, I think just the original Contra had one of the best video game soundtracks. Oh yeah, for sure. Because I would do some great stuff back on the NES. Yeah, I mean, the entire Contra soundtrack is just spectacular. You know, it definitely could be the theme for almost any Schwarzenegger movie set in the 80s. And these songs all really stand the test of time to me. But uh, I think the jungle theme, or the stage one sets the tone for the relentless pace you're just going to encounter throughout the Contra series. Yeah, it is an excellent soundtrack. One of my favorites as well. Didn't quite make my top ten list, but yeah, I think that's a great choice. My next pick is Chrono Trigger, also for the Super NES. The composer, Yasunori Mitsuda, delivered some fantastic variety with the soundtrack, from catchy, upbeat battle tunes to downright soothing or spooky background music that really brought out the best in each scene. I feel like each era had its own distinct sound as well, and the ending theme pretty much always brings a bit of a tear to my eye. There are a lot of great songs in this game, but I think the rousing character themes are probably my favorites, even if Robo's theme does sound a little bit like Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. Yeah, it totally does. But needless to say, it is a fantastic soundtrack. For sure. 
for my next choice, I want to go with something a little bit more hard rockin'. And for me, nothing says hard rock quite like the F-Zero soundtrack. Ah, another excellent pick. Now, to me, F-Zero has the most atypical soundtrack from almost any Nintendo title. And I knew I had to include one here, so I think that if I'm going to pick an F-Zero game, I'm going to go with F-Zero X, because they really laid on the guitar sound (laughs) far more than the other entries into the series. Yeah, I have to agree. F-Zero has some great music, and I'm totally with you. F-Zero X, I would say, is the best in the set. Uh, It's all, you know, super 80s kind of, but I love it nonetheless. Yeah, they really just took the music from the F-Zero franchise and just cranked it to 11. Yeah, for sure. The next one for me is Double Dragon on the NES. I just found these tunes to be super energetic and rousing, and it just really sets the action mood well. The title theme and the opening level just have so much excitement and uh, punch to them, uh, pun intended, I guess, that it just really gets you in the mood to hit the streets and rescue Marion. Oh yeah, that soundtrack does a lot with a little, for sure. Yeah, it's pumping. <laughs> a lot newer, and pick something from the Metroid Prime series. Oh, right on. Yeah, you know, I really wanted to have a Metroid song in this list. I had a hard time deciding which one, but I thought that Metroid Prime in particular did a really good job of using the classic tunes and modernizing them. I get tingles just thinking about this particular song, along with the uh, modern synthesized sound effects. This track in particular starts really slow and then just builds into something that is pretty impressive. Yeah, for sure. I kind of feel like the soundtrack to Metroid Prime and maybe the Metroid series in general is a bit overlooked, but yeah, it's got some really great stuff in there.
The next one for me is DuckTales on the NES. You know, you might not think that a licensed game based on a kid's cartoon would have an awesome soundtrack, but man, this game sure does. There are five main environments, and each one is accompanied by amazing background music from composer Hiroshige Tonomura that just seems to get better and better with each level you play. The moon theme is pretty much universally recognized as an all-time great, just bursting with fun and energy, but the other tunes shouldn't be overlooked either, especially the Himalayas theme, in my opinion. And back to my point earlier, you know, the HD remakes of this just go on to prove that those songs are lasting and so good. Oh yeah, for sure. DuckTales Remastered has an amazing soundtrack as well. choice. It's the first of three Legend of Zelda choices that I picked. (laughs) I just couldn't narrow it down to one. Understandable. That series has some great music. So I think I'm going to start with Link to the Past. Okay. You know, all Zelda games have just great soundtracks, but Link to the Past has something special. I think it's because the Super Nintendo allowed them to compose some really compelling tracks. This track in particular really has the grandeur of the original Zelda overworld theme only with a much more sinister, sort of darker vibe. Yeah, I have to agree. The Zelda series pretty much always delivers fantastic soundtracks, and uh, A Link to the Past is certainly a great example of that. Yeah, I feel like this track in particular just kind of sets you up for the second part of the game. Like, you've now reached this alternate universe. Anyway, it definitely sets the tone for what you're about to encounter. The next one on my list is also a 16-bit classic, and I'm talking about Final Fantasy VI. I certainly liked a lot of video game music prior to playing Final Fantasy VI, or three as it was known at the time, but this was the first one that made me actually go out and buy the soundtrack. It's another one that has a really broad range of sound, from exciting battle tunes to quirky character themes, and I'm especially looking at you, Kefka's theme. Plus, it's got some emotional hymns during the game's more somber moments. There are just so many great tunes composed by Nobuo Uematsu here, but my favorites include Epitaph from When You Are Discovering Daryl's Tomb, Dancing Mad, which is the truly epic final boss theme, and then, of course, the opera music, which taught an entire generation of gamers that opera could actually be cool and somehow fooled us into almost hearing human voices coming out of our Super NESs. 
Pete might be able to erase my save file, but he will never be able to erase this game's great music. Yeah, even I have to admit, this is one classic soundtrack that is something I don't think I'll ever forget. next Zelda soundtrack that I have up my sleeve is The Wind Waker. The Wind Waker to me has one of the most outstanding soundtracks of any Nintendo game. Outset Island is this perfect example, I think. It just kind of sets up the tone of the game. It's almost as if you're about to watch the beginning of a play or like, I don't know, some sort of stage opera. You know, speaking of operas. Mm -hmm. You get this very cheerful intro tune that just kind of sets the tone for this epic quest you're about to go on. Yes, another fine choice. Next up for me is Gradius 3 for the Super NES. As I mentioned earlier, I think that Konami made some of the best music in the business back in the day, and they've made a lot of amazing soundtracks over the years, but the Gradius titles you know, really, really stand out to me. Gradius 3 in particular has got this very 80s-infused synth sound, but it's also at the same time very epic and energizing and uplifting, and it just kind of makes you think you can soar to victory in the Vic Viper and accomplish just about anything. Yeah, definitely a classic. So my final Zelda choice would have to be Ocarina of Time. Yeah, you can't miss Ocarina of Time, that's for sure. Yeah, to me it's easily one of the most epic games that Nintendo has ever created. But the soundtrack, you know, really tells you the same thing. There are just so many great tracks. I mean, it's got to be one of the more like deeper and more robust Nintendo soundtracks up to that point. Oh yeah. You know, personally, I really love the Kakariko Village theme. It just sets the tone for this like peaceful village, and it's actually impossible to be anxious while listening to this song. <laughs> it's a scientific fact. That's pretty much true. Yeah, I definitely feel bad for not including any Zelda titles in my top 10, because I really, truly do love the music from almost every entry in that series, but Ocarina of Time is especially a standout. Big props in particular to the Gerudo Valley theme. Yeah, I definitely almost thought about playing that one. I can hear that one in my sleep. <laughs> Nice. 
My next choice is The Legend of the Mystical Ninja on the Super NES. This is yet another Konami great, but what sets this one apart is how it incorporates traditional Japanese sounds and rhythms and instrumentation with modern sensibilities to make something that sounds totally unique. It has some fantastic tunes that you know, really don't sound especially Japanese, and those are all very, very good as well. But it's that unique style that really puts this one on the map and sets it apart from all its contemporaries. Uh, fun fact, I actually use this song that's playing right now for my morning alarm clock, so I hear it literally every single day. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? This one, I honestly thought you would think I was ridiculous. <laughs> well, that's because, Pete, I always think you're ridiculous. <laughs> uh, right, but even more ridiculous. Now, it might not seem fair to have a game that is notoriously known for just having one song, but the punch-out theme is one of the best in the business. This song could literally loop in my head for the rest of my life, and I'd be totally okay with that. I'm sure you would. And in particular, Punch-Out! Wii did a great job of modernizing the original theme adding some synthesized horns and just like, I don't know, a little bit modernizing it for the current gen. It really makes quite a workout song. Yep, that is true. It's a classic tune for sure. My next choice, I am going with Mega Man 2 for the NES. This is a soundtrack that I feel really defies expectations. There are literally two layers of sound to each track, and the tunes are structured in a very complex, creative, unconventional way that I feel goes against typical music writing formulas. The songs don't build up the way that songs usually do, and I feel like that is part of the soundtrack's brilliance. Admittedly, the Wily Stage theme, which is often regarded as the best song on the soundtrack, is kind of conventional in that sense, but you know, nonetheless, it is really catchy and beloved for very good reasons. However, my favorite tune from this game's soundtrack is Crash Man's Stage, which is undeniably funky and unlike anything else in pretty much any video game out there. Yeah, Mega Man 2, pretty much from the moment you turn it on, just hits you with this rockin' riff on top of the building, and it just never lets you go. That's for sure. Alright, 
Well, keeping it in the Capcom universe, I decided to go with Street Fighter 2. Oh, excellent pick. Yeah, I mean, every single track in Street Fighter 2 is just about as perfectly themed as it gets. You know, you get Guile, Zangief, Chun-Li. E-Honda, yep. Yeah, and just each country represented expertly. Ken's theme, to me, really gets me going. It reminds me of something that just would have easily been in some montage in an 80s movie or something. <laughs> yep, you are spot on. Pretty much every track in this game is phenomenal. My personal favorite is the Balrog stage, or Cammy's from Super Street Fighter 2. It killed me to not quite be able to squeeze this title into my top 10 list, but uh, yeah, like you said, pretty much every track is an absolute A+. And of course, uh, Guile's theme works with everything. <laughs> That's what they say. Next up for me is Ninja Gaiden on the NES. This was probably the first game soundtrack that really made me take notice of just how good video game music could be. I mean, I liked game music before this, but this was the first one that I could just rock out to. I mean, I would turn on the sound test in this game and just listen to the music in the background for you know what felt like hours. It has these really powerful, pulse-pounding percussion beats that just really complement the action amazingly well, and they make you just want to jump off walls and throw ninja stars and <laughs> kick Bloody Moth's butt. Yeah, just look out for those uh, kamikaze birds. <laughs> That's right. You're going to have to stab a few birds while you're rocking out to the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, but that soundtrack is really good. choice, I went with something a little unorthodox, and I feel like it doesn't get the lion's share of its praise for its soundtrack, but for me, Super Mario Bros. 2 has a really just funky vibe. Oh, definitely interesting choice. Yeah, you know, all the Mario games have great soundtracks, but this one, for some reason, just really stands out. In particular, this underground theme you can hear has a Congo percussion. To me, I think it was like the first game to really do it. It also gives me this sort of desert slash, I don't know, Middle Eastern vibe. And that was like a sound that I'd never really heard up to that point in my life. And it makes a lot of sense, though, considering the game's origins. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that this game does have an underappreciated soundtrack. That particular tune isn't one of my favorites, but, you know, it does have some great stuff in there. I especially love the battle against war at the end and then the ending theme that comes after that. Ah, uh, yes. All classics. 
So rounding out my list is yet another Konami soundtrack, this one being Super Castlevania 4 for the Super NES. Basically, all of the Castlevania games have had great soundtracks with really captivating main themes, and this one is no different except for the fact that because it put the series on the Super NES for the first time, it completely surpassed its 8-bit predecessors, it had these really moody, gothic organ sounds and some amazing arrangements of already amazing tunes from the previous games. Songs that were already great got even better, and then the excellent theme of Simon, this game's main theme, just really puts it over the top. And I especially love the way that that tune in particular is incorporated into the final battle and just transforms this melancholy encounter with Dracula into this heroic, action-packed clash for the ages. Uh, I could pretty much put any Castlevania game into this slot, but Super Castlevania 4 is absolutely a highlight. Yeah, the Castlevania series in general is just chock full of great soundtracks, so definitely a hard one to choose from. Indeed. So for my final selection, I wanted to pick something again from the Mario universe, and in particular, Super Mario World on the Super Nintendo. Oh yeah, well, it's hard to go wrong with Mario. Yeah, and in particular, this castle theme really just captures my attention. I mean, the whole Super Mario World soundtrack is great, and it really is like, I don't know, just light-spirited, and when you get to the castle, it really has this foreboding, impending doom. You know, I love the low bass notes, the fast-paced synthesized strings with these big organ crescendos. It almost sounds like something you could imagine like Count Dracula playing on his pipe organ. Oh yeah, speaking of uh, Castlevania, but yeah, you make some uh, great points about that. It certainly is very atmospheric. Man, Hoff, are you sure we don't have time to play the entire soundtrack? Uh, we'll see. Maybe next time. <laughs> All right, well, there you have it. 20 great video game soundtracks. 10 from me, 10 from Pete. I hope everyone has enjoyed going on this musical journey with us. Obviously, musical preference is very much a matter of taste, but if we've helped anyone discover something new and exciting to listen to, so much the better. And I would just encourage anyone to listen to these full video game soundtracks. Any of these games are total classics, and you can almost not find a bad track on the list. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And I just love the fact that you can actually listen to game soundtracks these days. You know, when we were a lot younger, it was hard to listen to this stuff outside the video game. But now you can listen to them on streaming services. You can actually go out and buy game soundtrack CDs if you want to import them from Japan. All kinds of options to listen to this stuff. And that is excellent. Yeah, and also YouTube, you know, is a great last-ditch effort. If you're really looking for a song, it's easy to find. And uh, yeah. Yeah, they have just about everything. It's true. 
And with that said, I do believe that is the conclusion of this week's big topic, which means it is time for us to wrap up this episode of the podcast. But before we do, even though it's been a long episode, we do have time for one more thing, and that is a dramatic reading. <laughs> this time, it is from the Nintendo eShop description of the Switch game, My Secret Pets. Your beloved pets have transformed into hot guys? An exciting story of cohabitating with some thrilling animal men. This is a romance game for women, where you live with your pets who have suddenly transformed into attractive men. You'll spend seven days with your pets, who love you devotedly. Are they your pets, or are you becoming the pet? Your exciting reverse harem cohabitation with these animal men is about to begin. <laughs> Available in Japanese, English, and simplified Chinese. The story. When you return home rejected the evening after being broken up with by your boyfriend, waiting for you are four handsome men who are actually your pets. <laughs> Cue a fierce battle for the love of their beloved former owner. You, but watch out for the reappearance of your ex. Those are words to live by. I suppose that's true. Pets or no pets, you should definitely be aware of that happening. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard the word harem used in a video game description, but whatever. <laughs> well, Pete, maybe that's just because you're playing the wrong games. <laughs> All right, I'll keep that in mind. But uh, anyway, if you are interested in seeing what this is about, there actually is a demo on the eShop, so uh, you can uh, give it a spin and uh, get that harem for yourself. Hmm, sounds tempting. Anyway, that's it for this week. As always, you can find us at powerpros.podbean.com, and you can follow us at powerprospod on both Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me, The Hoff, on Twitter at ChrisTheHoff, and you can find Pete at BurlyRedYeti. You can email us at powerprospod at gmail.com, and if you like the podcast, it would be great if you told your friends about us. Thanks for listening, everybody. For myself, Pete Michaud. Agents are go! And our good friend Lucas. He can't freeze! We will see you next time.